Gang podcast for May 17th, 2012. The Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. Chuck is the smartest person in the world. Oh, come on now. (laughs) (laughs) We have a special guest today who I'll introduce in a minute, but first, I'm going to go around the virtual table and introduce my co hosts. We have Mr. Chuck Monster, the aforementioned smartest man in the world. What's happening, Chuck? Oh, not much. Just, uh, very happy to be here. It's a beautiful day and a beautiful time to be alive. <laughs> All right. That's quite positive. Uh, Dr. Dave Schwartz, who is the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hi there. How are you? Great. Awesome. <laughs> uh, my name is Hunter Hilligus. I'm at RateVegas.com. And we have a special guest today, as I mentioned. Uh, we have Roger Gross. Roger is the publisher of... Global Gaming Business Magazine and has a, a long history in gaming, which we'll talk about a bit and get him to tell us uh, some of his deep, dark secrets. But I want to say uh, welcome, Roger. Uh, thanks, Hunter. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm honored that, that you asked me. I've listened to you guys for, for several years now, and uh, I, I always like your interaction, so I hope uh, I don't drag the show down. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sure you'll do just fine. Uh, we have nowhere to go but up. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be just fine. We're looking forward to having you, and uh, we'll get into um, some of the details in a minute. But first off, um, a quick uh, announcement. We are reminding people of the world that we have the Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic. Uh, It will be um, October 13th in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, You can visit uh, VegasInternetMafia.com for more information. Uh, and all of the details will be forthcoming. Our good friends at uh, 500 by Midnight will be there, uh, as well as um, all of us and all of your favorite Vegas trippers. So uh, it should be a good time. We had a lot of fun last year, and we're looking forward to doing it again. So uh, keep monitoring the site. The date is announced. We're still uh, working out some of the details on the best spots and the best activities, but you can uh, plan all your travel stuff, and we hope to see you there. All right. Roger, Roger, Roger. Let's start with you. Um, You know, I'm sure that we have an overlap in people that listen to this podcast and people that read your publication and all the stuff you do because you do all kinds of stuff. But why don't we we start by – who are you? Explain yourself. What do you do? (laughs) <laughs> I, I uh, started in the gaming industry back in uh, the late 70s. I, uh, I was on the East Coast uh, living in Washington, D.C., uh, um, hooked up with a woman from Atlantic City, and we decided to move up there um, as gambling started. I, I was a musician, and I figured, well, I could play in the, in the lounges at the, uh, at the Atlantic City casinos. Well, when I got there, I realized that was not going to happen because you had to be uh, a real musician, not just a rock and roll musician <laughs> like I was. And uh, you also had to uh, be in the union, which I always objected to. So uh, I ended up uh, actually having a nice time up there uh, running a a marina, uh, servicing boats. uh, So I had a great time. But then I had a second child and I had to get serious. And uh, I became a dealer at uh, Caesars Atlantic City when it opened in uh, in May of 1979. So uh, I got I got sucked into the casino industry and uh, 
really didn't like it that much, frankly. It was uh, being a dealer in Atlantic City was a very, very rough job in those days. Uh, there was only a few uh, dealers that were licensed. Uh, it was very hard to get a license in New Jersey in those days. So uh, they were always uh, chronically short of dealers. I would work uh, six days a week, uh, nine, ten hours a night, and then, of course, all the overtime that they could slam on you. So it was very uh, a very difficult job. I ended up hating it. And uh, Eventually started writing um, for a little magazine called Casino Journal, which was a little broadsheet newspaper in those days uh, for the employees in uh, in the Atlantic City industry. And uh, uh, really enjoyed that. And uh, uh, later on in my dealing career, I went to work for Steve Wynn, which was a real revelation. Uh, he was I actually was a Baccarat dealer for him. So I would uh, uh, he would actually come down and sit on a dead game with us and talk to us as, as just the lowly dealers. So uh, that was a, a great learning experience for me. Uh, uh, but then I always like to say when Steve Wynn left the left the business uh, in Atlantic City, I left the business. That's when I I quit uh, dealing and I went full time to become the editor of Casino Journal. OK. And so that takes us to what year? That was uh, 1985. Okay. Uh, and uh, three years later, we started a magazine called Casino Player Magazine, which still exists. Sure. I was the original editor of that magazine. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, how am I ever going to write? Because we wanted to do a story on slot machines every issue. And I, wanted, I couldn't figure out how we were going to say something original about slot machines for every issue. And, of course, now there's magazines, whole <laughs> magazines devoted to slot machines. Right. So. Uh, uh, it was a real learning experience. We were really one of the first uh, uh, gaming uh, uh, consumer publications. We we really started the uh, the payback percentage. Uh, I, I had noticed that the casinos had always, had always published, or the states uh, that published the their data uh, published a casino win percentage uh, on slot machines. So I really just turned that around. Right. And, and and made it uh, the player win percentage, and uh, we used to publish charts on on that, and it became very popular, and uh, and that really was was really the thing that launched us as, as the consumer magazine. At, at that point, you're in Las Vegas, or still Atlantic City? I was still in Atlantic City, and uh, you know, a lot of the the executives in that magazine moved out to Las Vegas. I always resisted it. Uh, in the late '90s, um, I was working for for uh, Casino Journal and Casino Player, and and um, the, uh, there was a trade show uh, war that was going on in the gaming industry. There was two trade shows. Uh, the American Gaming Association was starting their own trade show called Global Gaming Expo, going up against a long-established trade show called the World Gaming Congress. Well, the, the folks that owned the World Gaming Congress also owned our competing publication, of which there were only two. So they actually bought my publication, and they thought they were buying me too, but I said, no, I'm not <laughs> So uh So I quit, and... Uh, they had a they had really a monopoly on on uh, the publications and the AGA came to me and said well we need a publication to promote our trade show um, and they they gave me a little stake money I went out and raised a lot more and uh, and hence global gaming business was was founded and uh, I'm still still to this day I'm a consultant with uh, global gaming business to help them with their conference program. Nice. So you are in. Las Vegas now, or you're still... Now, yes. Now, once we started Global Gaming Business, I realized you had to be in the gaming capital. Atlantic City wasn't going to cut it. So uh, I moved out here, started a couple of other publications, which uh, have since folded uh, just because of the economy. We started two two magazines called Casino Connection, which was kind of a 
a, a, a throwback to the old days when we had Casino Journal. It was really for um, casino employees in both Atlantic City and Las Vegas. They were two separate publications, and they worked in the beginning when the economy was good, but when the downturn came, they both uh, they both failed. So we're we're really focusing on global gaming business and, and trade shows right now, and uh, we're we're actually doing pretty well. We've we've really uh, responded from the bad economy. Uh, things are going well for us, and uh, and I think things are looking up for for all the gaming jurisdictions except possibly for Atlantic City. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Atlantic City in a minute, but first off, I wanted to let you mention you've got a trade show coming up in like less than two weeks. Why don't, yes. What's that all about? Well, this is the first one I've done myself uh, for a while. I'm in partnership with a company called the Innovation Group, which is a big consulting company. And, uh, we, you know, we noticed there's there's a lack of uh, – of uh, coverage on the non-gaming side. And when you look at the revenue that's made on the Strip, um, you know, way more than 50% of the revenue comes from non-gaming amenities. Uh, the casino is almost a secondary thought on the Strip, and that's starting to happen in a lot of other jurisdictions. So we started a... Uh, a uh, trade show. It's really a conference called the RD&E Experience, uh, which is retail, dining, and entertainment in the hospitality industry. And we focus on all those those things that bring revenue in from non-gaming amenities. And uh, it's uh, getting a good, very good reception. Uh, we're excited about it. It's May 30th and 31st at uh, at M Resort. And if anybody wants to come and contact me, I'll I'll give you a big discount to to show up because we want to get as many bodies as we can in there. And I think it's going to be a very educational event. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put. Um, we can you can figure out well, the best way to people contact you. I'll put that in the show notes. We'll f- I'll make sure I get that info from you. Um, so, M Resort, are you going to be in the GSA ballroom? <laughs> I imagine so. I hope they've cleaned <laughs> up by then. <laughs> um, I want to rewind a little bit to, to talk about two things you mentioned. One was working for Steve Wynn, so clearly a legend in the industry, and um, you know had a huge impact on Atlantic City. You, you sort of um, quickly mentioned what that experience was like, but you know, I just in, what's what's it like working for Steve Wynn, especially at that period when he was still sort of I don't know maybe formative years is is, is not the right term, but he he still had so much to achieve compared to where he is now. Yeah, he was still developing his style, developing his corporate culture. Um, I came on the first year that the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City was opened. Uh, he did something that shook the the employee base in Atlantic City like crazy. He he uh, actually gave everybody who worked for him a car for as a as a holiday bonus. Uh, you know, worth worth up to fifteen thousand dollars, I think it was in those days, and uh, everybody was shocked. And that the loyalty that that he brought uh, engendered uh, through that gift was just amazing. And and you know. He, there's there's some real legendary stories of him screaming at top executives and berating them and really being a tough boss. But when it came to the line employees, he was great. I mean, you would see him walking around and he'd stop and chat with people. And, uh, you know, this is the guy that runs a casino and, and he was very approachable. So, uh, you know, it's really a, a fantastic uh, environment for, for the line employees anyway. Maybe not so much for the for – the, uh, the executives, but certainly for the line employees. And uh, it, w- it was a very exciting time. I, I came the next year, and I-, I remember I started working for him in October, and I figured I'll never get any kind of bonus no matter what he's given out. Well, he- even that second year, he gave out $2,500, and this was uh, you know in the-, in the middle 80s, and that was still a-, a heck of a lot of money, and I got it you know, just from being there for two months. So nice. I-, I was loyal to him for, for many, many years. And-, and when I 
when I uh, got out of the business and, and started covering the business, you know, he remembered me right away. And, you know, even to this day, he, whenever I see him, he knows who I am, knows the background. And uh, he's, uh, he, he's always been very kind to me. And uh, I, I, I still think he's, he's the quality of, of the industry, even though there's, there's some little blips uh, in the last few years. But, uh, but he's, he's definitely a genius and he's, he's definitely probably the most, most compelling uh, personality in the gaming industry. In, in an industry full of compelling personalities, that's definitely saying something. But I, I'm sure many people would agree with you. Um, what was it like when Wynn bailed from Atlantic City in terms of sort of the feeling from the employees and even whatever contact that you had with guests? I mean, how, how did people take it at the time? Oh, it was it was just an incredible week there when because it was revealed that he was selling you know a few days uh, before he actually sold and then he, if you remember he sold to Bally Manufacturing in those days, right. which was run by a gentleman named uh, Richard Gilman, and when I held employee uh, meetings. Uh, the day that he announced the sale and everybody came in and there was gnashing of teeth. There was wailing. There was crying. He was crying. Uh, you know, people were saying, what are we going to do without you? And he, he, he vowed to come back. He, he actually had a plot of land, uh, in the Marina district right on the water that he had planned. He already had, had de- designed a, a, a facility for there. And he said, when I come back, I'm hiring all of you, you know, and of course we didn't think he'd be gone for forever. Really. He right. still had to come back. And, um, it, it was just a, a real emotional day. The next day, uh, Bally comes in and Richard Gilman uh, uh, has meetings with the employees and it was the polar opposite. Richard Gilman was a very cold individual, a very smart guy. He knew how to run a business, uh, but just very cold, you know, no emotion whatsoever. And just the, the, the uh, morale just went through the floor. And that, that really was the that's, – that's really why I decided to leave because I just didn't think I could work for him. Was was that common? Did they lose a lot of employees as part of that transition? No, I don't think so. Everybody really wanted their job at that point. I was right. still I was considering leaving already because I had had uh, had success with Casino Journal. So uh, this just pushed me over the edge. But I, I don't. I think not too many other people left. Let's talk about Atlantic City a little bit. I mean, you know, Dave is an Atlantic City native, That's and right. we've talked about Atlantic City a lot on this show over the years. And, and usually the stories aren't really all that positive. Um, recently, you know, they had Revel um, go through its soft open process, and there was a story about their pretty anemic casino win in their first reporting period. Uh, well, how do you feel about Atlantic City today? How do you see Atlantic City and where it's going? Well, I, I've always been a big fan of Atlantic City because I always thought, you know, the, that it was it was underappreciated and. Uh, and there was always a possibility for it to to rebound, but to tell you the truth, I'm really getting a little little uh, disappointed in it now because uh, even though we have a governor now that's really uh, paying attention to the city and doing everything he can for it, I just think uh, uh, time has passed it by. You know, uh, there's too much negative publicity. Um, I don't. I was just on TripAdvisor today looking at reviews of Revel, and it's overwhelmingly negative. It's unbelievable that the, that a property of this size could open and and be and not be ready, uh, so that there's so many negative reviews. Uh, yeah, we all know it's in a soft opening period, and we all know there's a lot of shakedown to go. But uh, it seems that that the training wasn't done correctly. 
correctly because people don't really understand how to answer questions or even service employees or or show a, a positive attitude. And the building itself is great. I mean, it's a beautiful building. I've gotten tours of it uh, several times before it opened, and uh, it just looks uh, looks like a great property. But I just can't believe that they they didn't have you know some systems in place to avoid the the pitfalls that they've hit already, particularly in the gaming area. I mean, you would think certainly you know they're aiming for non gaming revenue, but you, gaming is still the most important factor in Atlantic City, and they just weren't ready for it. It you know it, especially I, I assume that the folks at Borgata were a little bit nervous about what was going to happen when Revel came online and how how they were going to be impacted. I mean, clearly Borgata had a target on its back as far as any new entrance to the market. But man, it really seems like they have that Revel has significantly underperformed in the casino department. Absolutely, I think I, you know the number was thirteen million, and uh, I mean that's barely more than than you know the the old Atlantic City Hilton or the old Golden Nugget, as we say now. It was uh, it, it was very disappointing, and and you would think that there'd be some sort of plan when they got out of the gates here, but uh, it, there really apparently was nothing, and they really just wanted to go through the operations and make sure they were running according to plan. So uh, you know, I'm, I even though I'm disappointed, I'm still going to reserve my judgment because Kevin DeSantis is a really really smart operator and I think he can turn it around but he's going to have to do it really really quickly here uh, because if he doesn't do it you know by the summer and he's not cranking uh, out 50 million dollar win per month uh, uh, months here uh, it's going to be really difficult for him once you get into the, the fall and the winter season because that's really been been the uh, the nemesis of Atlantic City over the last five years the summer's always been strong but those those seasons are, are really weak and if he doesn't really crank it up and, and get it running at full steam by the end of the summer, you know it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. It's if he this they have this window of opportunity to really sort of make up people's minds about what they're about and what they can expect when they come there and how they're going to be treated. And if they if they miss that, they're going to be in some real trouble uh, in the following months. No question. Uh, Dave, you know, you, you haven't, we, I don't think we've talked about Revel since, since those numbers come out. I mean, we've talked about it in the past. What do you think about, about where these numbers ended up? Well, you know, I think it just shows the struggle that they had ahead of them. A lot of people thought that, well, first of all, a lot of people in Atlantic City thought that this was going to be kind of a magic bullet. Like, okay, once they open it, all our problems are solved. Everything's going to be better. And clearly that wasn't going to be the case, but I think this really is a reality check, you know? It may be a great property, but they've got a lot of challenges. They're in a jurisdiction that's been shrinking for the past five years. So, as Roger said, they really do have to amp it up. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting as I have friends that live in Philadelphia, and they were really excited when Borgata opened, and they made a, a tr special trip out there to see it shortly thereafter. But despite all the press that Revel got in in the Philadelphia market, they just weren't really that interested. Which I wonder why that is. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if, if there's something specific about the way it was rolled out or the, the marketing, but it, it, there seems to be at least some depressed level of interest amongst some of the folks in that market. Maybe it's just that, hey, you know, we have casinos in Pennsylvania now. We don't really care that much about Atlantic City anymore. Yeah, I'd also want to know what kind of marketing muscle they have behind them. You know, if this was Win Atlantic City, what do you think the hype and expectations would be? And what do you think the marketing would be if that, you know, if that was the case? Or if this was MGM Atlantic City, let's say that had gone forward, or the Pinnacle Project. So it's I'm not sure exactly what, how much national marketing they've done to push it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, though, if they're not 
heavily marketing it now, they need to start soon. <laughs> well, and to give it to Vegas land, Dave, what do you think of the comparison to uh, to the Cosmopolitan? Uh, I know Revel doesn't have the same price tag as the Cosmopolitan, but it seems to to be uh, suffering in the first month from from the same problem that you know great non gaming stuff, but uh, the the casino is not not getting the play. Right, that's a pretty apt comparison too, because you've got a the same lack of a legacy database. You know the. Uh, you know, the other question I have is why they're not able to lure people from Showboat and the Taj and Resorts who are already there to come down. Obviously, once they come in, they're going to want to gamble because they're in Atlantic City. So I'm, I'm curious about why there hasn't been that kind of uh, crossover because at Borgata, you saw an immediate out of the gate. They were doing pretty well, and they led the city right. by leaps and bounds in their first year. So, you know, well, they – Unfortunately, yeah. they did take a lot from the Taj Mahal. They were down almost thirty percent. So uh, you know they are getting business from that end of town. But but also it's at the end of the boardwalk, I think, which is another problem that people didn't really focus on. It's not as easy to get to as the Borgata, which is a you know you pop off the expressway and you're there. Um, this is you have to either go through town or or you know go kind of a convoluted way through the highways, and uh, it's uh, it's a difficult property to reach, even though they have expanded the streets and and you know uh, still the the uh, perception of Atlantic City is that it's not not uh, safe, and you have to go through some of those neighborhoods, which might have that perception. Although I don't, I don't believe that's true anymore. So those neighborhoods have really been improved. Uh, so it's not as dangerous as it once was. But you know, the people who are coming down from Philly, you know, they don't want to go through these neighborhoods. So does Atlantic City just need fewer casinos, not more? I mean, is there just is the is the um, demand just not high enough to satiate all of the supply? I think the demand is there. You know, you, you're in that, you're in the Northeast. There's a lot of people there who like to gamble. There's a lot of people who fly to Vegas, a lot of people who play in other casinos. It's just creating a product that's compelling enough that will make them either give up a trip to Vegas or say, you know, we're not going to go to the casino that's 30 miles away. We're going to go to Atlantic City instead. You've got to do that. Yeah. Chuck, I mean, what you, you're sort of have your finger on the pulse of your people through the, website and the forums and stuff. I mean, what's your take on how people are the excitement level for Revel when it comes to Atlantic City? I'd say it was a uh, a dull thud. Uh, <laughs> people people uh, certainly have talked about it. There's been a lot of discussion and and questioning and whatnot. But something you said earlier, Hunter, if 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 this was when Atlantic City. Uh, the discussion we'll be having is not uh, theorizing about the performance, but talking about what we all saw. We all would have gone within the first month of Win Atlantic City opening because that is a destination you have to see. Revel is another architectonica piece, just like the Cosmopolitan. It almost has the exact same sort of footprint and concept. Uh, the design's the same. Uh, their marketing strategy is virtually identical. It looks the same. It acts the same. It feels the same. Uh, if you're a if you're a Vegas watcher, you know you see the Revel stuff and you think it's Cosmopolitan East. Why bother? To a degree, you know I, I'm not so sure that they they have figured out exactly what it is that they want to say and how they want to lure people in. But then again, you know, we are in the soft opening. They've got Beyonce coming for five nights over Memorial Day weekend. 
which is going to be a huge uh, boost launch of the property. So, you know, reserving judgment is probably a good idea. The other thing also is who really knows how to open a property now? Nobody. Everything that's open in the last five years, other than Encore and Win, has had all sorts of crazy problems at the beginning. You know, the, the whole idea of having everything perfect at opening, having the staff trained, having the uh, uh, the facilities working, everything working like clockwork, you know, only Steve Wynn does that. Nobody else does that. Well, it doesn't work that way. I think in the case of Encore, Wynn had the benefit of all the systems already having been online for, you know, five years because they're basically just expanding their existing in terms of an operational perspective, right? I mean so they Palazzo they did lucky. too by That's that true. by that extension. That's and true. theirs was a failure. They had brown water in the hotel rooms. So you, know? you can do it wrong, yes, there's no doubt. Um, though I would also say the opening of Win wasn't exact Win Las Vegas wasn't exactly perfect. They had some problems, but it didn't seem to be as as bad as some of these other places. But you make a good point. It is tough to open these places. Nobody does it 100% perfectly. Still, when all eyes are on you, I guess the the differentiation is you know things are going to go wrong. You have some kind of plan to fix them quickly or at least make your customers happy. Look, we can't give you X. It's not working. We'll take care of you in this other way. So they don't go on TripAdvisor and say, one star, I hate this place. I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, you find some way to uh, you know make them feel like they were taken care of even if everything isn't perfect. Right. Uh, oh, go, yep. Was someone going to jump in there? I just felt like I cut somebody off. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, some of the problems, uh, they're, they have a lot of new technology in their rooms. Uh, they've got uh, some really high-tech uh, room technology where they have, they have iPads in the room which control all the functions of the room in terms of temperature, uh, all the electronics of the room. Uh, so, so that stuff didn't come online as, as smoothly as they had liked. Apparently some of the TVs were off. They couldn't, they couldn't turn on the TVs. And that, that was one of the reasons that they weren't really taking reservations. Uh, uh, and then, of course, they have the, the really uh, risky gamble of uh, making the entire casino non-smoking. Um, you know, Atlantic City is uh, as an old line gambling uh, town, and there's a lot of people that like to smoke when they gamble. Uh, you know, a lot of people who aren't going to go there just because of that. So I, I think they're going to have to reevaluate that that uh, policy uh, at some point in the near future. Do we have any idea of how big of a factor that could possibly be? I mean, I, that's hard to measure, but I'm wondering if there are is any indication that that is having a significant impact because that's an important factor that needs to. Well, be you know, we've we've seen studies through the years that uh, you know, depending upon what jurisdiction you're in, it, anywhere up to fifty percent of your customers can be smokers. So, uh, I, I would say in Atlantic City, it's at least twenty five percent. So, uh, you know, that's kind of cutting out twenty five percent of possible players. So, uh, I think they're going to have to look at that again. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I want to I want to transition uh, from Atlantic City to Las Vegas and uh, talk about a couple of properties that are in transition states. And um, the first one is Sahara, which will supposedly become the SLS. So there's this has been in the news over the past months. We've talked about it a lot. Um, there was another announcement of uh, some additional funding. And uh, and Dave, you talked to Rob Osland, who is a former Win employee who is now working with Sam Nazarian to turn Sahara into SLS. Can you tell us a little bit about your interview? 
Yeah, um, this was for Vegas 7, and I also blogged about it on Two Way Hard 3, so there's a ton of stuff out there. Basically, you know, just manage to track them down, uh, get them on the phone, ask them the questions that a lot of people were asking, a lot of the questions I had. You know, why do you think this is going to work? You know, how's it going to work in that location? How's it going to work for the price? And he had counter arguments to everything that I threw at him. And he believes very much in the project. He said that he chose to work for Sam Nazarian. He was attracted to the company. He liked it. It was small. It was entrepreneurial. Didn't want to work for a corporation, you know, which I'm sure he could have with his resume. You know, if you've been COO for Win, and basically he was sort of like Win's Bobby Baldwin after Bobby Baldwin for Win and Encore. He did the Bobby Baldwin job. So, you know, I think he probably would have had his pick of places to work and he was attracted to this, you know. Um, don't know anything about where they're going to get that extra $150 million. He seemed optimistic. But again, if he wasn't optimistic, I don't think he would be telling somebody like me that he wasn't optimistic. Right. So um, just uh, for me, the more interesting thing was going through his thought process about how they would approach it. And they really have a lot of data points and they've reached their conclusion, you know, and the data points are that Nazarian's done this in other markets with taking an older property, rehabbing it, turning a neighborhood around. So he thinks that's doable. And, you know, Osland has opened properties in Vegas. So he thinks he'll be able to open, the, you know, develop this one and open it. He's very experienced with that. So they seem to think that this is going to be a go. So they still have to raise – they have $300 million committed. They have to raise another 115 by – is there a time limit? Yeah, it's under this EB-5 program. And, he, you know, he's told me that basically by – you know, they should have it done by October mm-hmm. and that they would start work right away, you know, as in as soon as the ink is dry on the check uh-huh. or whatever it is, they start they start work. So – yeah, you know, I guess we should know by the time of VIMF whether this is happening or not. Right. Um, now, so, Chuck, uh, you know, we saw some models pop up in the photos. There was a massive puff piece in the sun about how great this was going to be for everyone um, that included a, some photos. And since then, SBE has posted a, um, some of the model stuff on their website – what do you think? You've seen, you've now seen what they want to do with the facade, at least. What, what's your impression? You know, I, I, I wish them the best of luck. I, I, I still don't exactly buy it. I think it looks better now, but I just, I don't, I don't buy it <laughs> for a lot of reasons. I don't buy it on the front end, and I don't buy it on the back end. And by the front end, is this is a lot. This is a lot of hype, and it's always been a lot of hype. With with SB, you know, reading Dave's things, you know, just one thing that Dave mentioned is how Sam Nazarian has experience uh, opening, taking distressed hotels and uh, turning neighborhoods around. Uh, West Hollywood and Beverly Hills are not neighborhoods that Sam Nazarian has turned around. The SLS Hotel is right in the middle of La Brea, which it's surrounded by high-priced hotels and restaurants. Uh, he took a, you know, a, a, a hotel that maybe was slightly underperforming, slapped a paint job on it, and put a phenomenal restaurant in the bottom of it. You know, you put Jose Andres in anything, and you're going to have a destination because he's a he's a great chef. And I give uh, 
uh, Nazarian and SB huge amounts of credit for finding the right talent. And uh, their investment in Umami Burger is one example of this. Uh, hiring Jose Andres to, to uh, curate all of their dining and all of their hotels. And hiring uh, Rob Osmond as well. Just all great choices. But I can't get past the fact that this is the north end of the strip, which in this location, which, you know, Osland and other people have said, oh, it's a great location. 50,000 cars travel by it every day. We're yeah, going to get locals. We're going to get tourists. We've got an interest on two sides. You know, in, in yesterday's Norm Clark, uh, or two days ago, Norm Clark quoted uh, Donald Trump about that intersection in regards to the Ivana right. project from a few years ago. And he said, it's the worst location in Las Vegas. <laughs> so, so who's right here? Now, granted, you know, Donald has a couple other things going on in his head. But it's uh, like, I mean, come on. Let's necessarily believe this on the front end or the back end of how they're going to be able to pay for this. I, I hate to go a little long, but, you know, when I, when I broke the news that the Sahara was closing, I'd known about this for a month. And I was getting reports from people on the inside about this. And the reason why they closed was because it they couldn't really afford to keep it open. It wasn't making any money. So if they can't do that and just say, you know what, let's take out the NASCAR cafe and put in a better burger joint. You know, if they can't incrementally keep the place kicking ass, then a whole bunch of Sears Weatherbeater and a couple of new restaurants, I don't know where that fits in with – being able to command $250 a night for a hotel room. Yeah. So I, I share your skepticism. I, Roger, I want to get your thoughts in a minute. But first, I mean, regarding the location, come on. Have you ever walked outside? If you walk outside the Sahara and you walk up Sahara, I mean, it's kind of gross. Like you feel like you might get stabbed or you, if you could buy <laughs> drugs if you wanted to. I mean, like it's not a good spot. And comparing yeah. it to some of the other major intersections across Las Vegas Boulevard – is really stretching the imagination yeah. of, you know, any sane person. And as far as its its location in general, I mean, you know, there's literally like a huge, empty, gross skeleton of a building right next door that is like blocking. It's like a, it's like a giant firewall between them and the rest of the strip. Yeah. It, and that thing is probably not going anywhere anytime soon. At least we don't have any indication that it, that it is. So their location is challenging and they're, them for them to say otherwise is some serious spin. Um, you know, I, I think Oslin's a really smart guy. I've met him a few times, and and uh, yes. he really came off as someone that knows what he's doing. Yep. So maybe they'll pull it off. I think you make a good point about sort of curation of sort of the the components. I wonder what the Cosmopolitan folks think about uh, Andres, like you know, basically having another relationship uh, with a significant relationship with another. Las Vegas Strip Hotel. I mean, I, you know, I think having him be sort of exclusive at the Cosmopolitan in terms of his Las Vegas exposure was probably good for them, um, and they re- and they really promoted him heavily as part of that. So I, I would wouldn't be surprised if he's less prominently displayed in Cosmopolitan's uh, food offerings in the future. I don't know if the Cosmopolitan gives a shit because <laughs> well, they're they're just trying to 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 get the place sold. Really? Yeah. Well, it's a good. You know, point. they're not. They're not really gonna gonna go create a relationship because it doesn't really all that matter with these folks. They're sort of absentee thought lords who are trying to, you know, steer a boat. So. Yeah. 
So if he's gone and you know if it's a five year contract, then he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. It's like Balud, five right. years of win, and then he was out the door. Yeah. So Roger, as we have waxed on for quite a while here now, what do you think about SLS? I'm sure you've been following this story and familiar with what this whole situation. I mean, are you? What do you think? Do you do you see this as a uh, a big opportunity for Nazarian and in a, in a home run? A are you a skeptic? Are you somewhere in the middle? I'm curious what you think. Well, I think you you all have hit the the points that. that that concerned me. Certainly the location is, is the major point, uh, with naked city caddy cornered, uh, to the, to the hotel, you know, as you mentioned, walking, walking North on the strip there, you know, even though stratosphere is just a, a few blocks up, it's uh, it's a difficult, uh, place to be. It's hard to get to, you know, even if you do get off of, uh, of I-15 and are able to wind your way down Sahara, you know, you got to find that, that kind of quirky entrance in the back there for you to park in. It's just, uh, it, there's just a lot of physical limitations to that property. So I, I really am not, not really trusting in their evaluation of, of why they think this is going to work. Uh, uh, also, you know, with the, the, uh, the same, uh, company, Developing properties in California is exactly correct. I mean, those are in decent neighborhoods as opposed to this one. So, yeah, I think that the North Strip could really come alive at some point. And when they had the the idea of putting uh, the Kersner slash MGM project across the street, and you were going to have the Fountain Blue, and that end of the the, the strip was going to have a lot of uh, synergy. But you know, this is kind of a standalone property, and I, I just don't see it working. I mean, especially as we got word this week or last week when Boyd Gaming goes to the county and says, look, it's probably going to be 2018 before we get around to doing anything with our Echelon project. Six more years! Six more years! There's no no evidence to suggest that this massive North Strip renaissance is happening anytime soon. I mean, you know, it's going to be a long time, if ever, right? And, And so I think... That's what makes this so tough. How are they going to pull this off in any kind of short term? I mean, let's say they do get it transformed. Are they just going to limp along for five years until they have some neighbors? Um, I, I think that's what they – that has to be their plan. They have to – their plan has to be we're going to be the hottest place in town and people are going to have to find us. But, you know, there's a lot of hot places in Vegas and th- those kind of things alter from time to time. You know, it used to be the Palms, used to be Hard Rock. Now it's the Cosmopolitan. But, again, it's hot – you know, in terms of non-gaming. So I don't really see how this is going to work. It's just a lot of money being sunk into a property that's already, you know, the bones are, are, are already worn. Yeah. I, my, oh, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, my perception, again, with, with the conversations with Rob, was that they were going to be getting people to come in there. You know, a lot of the stuff he said was, well, you know, people don't stay all the, the entire time they're in Vegas at one hotel. We think we can get them down here for at least one night. So I think the thought is that they're going to get them to come in for the food and the nightlife. You know, maybe they'll be able to fill the rooms with people, but they they would be getting a significant portion of the revenue from other people. And when I said gaming, you know, pretty much he said, well, we're not, we don't have to make a lot of money gaming because we're not going to have a, a ton of debt. Which again may or may not be true, but that that was a rationale. You know, it wasn't. This is going to be the one place where people are going to stay and spend all their time here. You know, and it's it's interesting, and I think the whole the way we're approaching it is interesting to me because the question is: Do they not see what we're seeing, or do we not see right. something that they're seeing? What's missing, right? I mean, is I it don't the, know. Is it that we we are not privy to certain information, or is it that? Nazarian is literally just – he's got nowhere to go but through, right? He can't yeah. – he's got so much rolled up in this that he has to go forward no matter what. 
he can't, you know, there's no other way out. And so he's just going to plow through. And maybe he's, I've, you know, maybe he's charismatic and charming enough that he's able to convince other people that his vision is correct. I don't know. I have a question about the numbers. Originally, it was that the Stockbridge and SBE had ponied up three and a quarter, and they were looking for another three hundred million. And now that's reduced to one fifteen. Is that correct, Dave? Yeah. Um. Originally, the whole—if you go back and read the April fourth press release—the price tag was about was I think seven hundred and fifteen million or something, or seven hundred and forty-five million. <laughs> that apparently they were lumping in the cost of the land with that. Oh, now whittled right it down. Up, right Again, up. this is – I don't have this definitively. I'm not looking at the statements, but this is just kind of what I can glean is that they've now kind of moved the goalposts or not moved the goalposts, moved the – End zone? Oh, crap. <laughs> not the end zone. The, the uh, scrimmage? Line of scrimmage. They've moved yeah. the line of scrimmage now. So now we're starting from there and we have to get $415 million to do the renovation. And that's the cost of the project. So basically, it gets written off the acquisition costs. I think that's the difference. <laughs> you know, I, and also, originally, there was talk about how they were going to bring, you know, take the places down to the skeleton, which, again, does that mean just buffing off the paint, or does that mean doing like they did with the ambassador, as Roger probably remembers, with the Tropicana right. Atlantic City and totally stripping it down to the steel? Right, or I mean, look at you know what what MGM did with the marina, right? I mean, that's got incorporated and swallowed up into yeah. their property, and those are still the crappiest rooms in the whole place, no matter <laughs> what they've done to them. Um, I just you know when you look at the Cosmopolitan, right? Incredibly great location, right next to Bellagio, one of the best performing places in town. Next to City Center, which you know not great performing necessarily, but hyped and definitely heavily promoted. Um, and it is still struggling the way that it is. How the hell is the Sahara going to make it? <laughs> yeah. And the, my other big question is why is Boyd, why is Boyd, why doesn't Boyd see the same potential? They, you know, granted right. it would cost them a lot more money, but they could probably, they could probably build an 800 room hotel with, you know, 80,000 square feet of gaming space, very, you know, do something very minimalistic and then open stuff in phases. So, you know, to have that flagship strip hotel, which would benefit their entire company, and they've obviously, they have 1.3 or 1.45 billion to buy Peninsula Gaming, you know, why they don't see the value in that, why they think it's more value to buy more casinos in Iowa, I think is very telling. Yeah. I don't know. I think... I mean, I guess my opinion hasn't changed. It's a really tough project for them. I It's interesting to see them starting to roll out some of the details and to get, you know, real people on board like Rob Oslin, but it it still seems like it's going to be a really tough sell. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see if they can convince the folks to loan the money. Now, of course, that may or may not be uh, as high of a... If they do, it may not be the vote of confidence that it may sound – I mean there's all kinds of deals that you can make that, well, if we, we'll give you the money, but if you fail, we're taking everything. I mean there's all kinds of ways you can structure those deals so that the yeah. lenders are inclined to, to proceed even if they're not 100 percent sure that you're going to succeed in your mission, right? I guess it depends on how far um, Nazarene and his associates are willing to go to make that financing happen because you can push that quite, quite far if you're properly motivated. 
Um, all right, let's see. Uh, I want to fit in a couple more things here. Um, I guess real quick, I want to touch on uh, Win Kotai because, you know, it's this phantom project that has been uh, promised for a long time. And it, for whatever reason, the, um, the government there took quite a while to approve it. The impression that I think many of us got from uh, Win Resorts was, you know, they would talk about it in their earnings calls, making it sound like it was about to be approved any day now. And then that process stretched on for like a year. And then they eventually, I think they eventually realized that it was going to be longer than they thought. And so they started spouting their standard line about how deliberate the Chinese government is in their planning process. Um, but it finally got published in the Gazette, which means that they basically can start going. I mean, the, I think, I believe the uh, government there has said that they're going to approve two Kotai sites uh, this year, and Win is one of them. I think MGM's hoping they'll be the other one. Uh, but you know, I think SJM wants to do something also. So it's it, who knows what the other site will be. But uh, you know, it's moving forward. What do you think about Wing Kotai? Any? I mean, it's been a while since it's been in the news, and and uh, other than the leaks we've had of the design, uh, Win is not really interested in talking about it. He's pretty guarded when it comes to uh, not giving his competitors any information they could use against him. But Chuck, you probably cover Kotai as closely as any of us. How big of a deal is this? Is this for Kotai? And uh, you know, are, are people as ex- it seemed like people were really excited about Win Kotai? Did that dissipate over all this time we had to wait for this to get approved, or is this going to be like oh the sort of the real the real arrival of the Kotai Strip when Win opens his property? I think people get excited the second the foundation gets poured and it starts going vertical. Uh, we all knew this was going to happen, you know, it, it was telegraphed about 14 times beforehand. We've all been waiting for the last two years for this to kind of happen. It is huge. This is going to be a gigantic game changer. This is going to be the nexus. This is when, when, uh, the whirlpool of insanity that is Macau really becomes a flood of, Kooks among us. It's going to be bananas and awesome. Uh, and regarding the property and the photos, it still looks like a lobster wearing a sweater. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'm sure it's going to be fabulous on the inside. Roger, we love you. Uh, Roger Thomas. Roger Gross, we love you too. Roger Thomas, we love you. And uh, I'll see you all at the opening. Um, so <laughs> that, I, I, you couldn't have put it better. Um, Roger, you – Put put the global and global gaming business for me for a minute. What's your <laughs> What's your thoughts on sort of Win Kotai and maybe the Kotai market in general? I mean, you, you we haven't really talked about it on the show. I'm sure Kotai is such an important market for gaming in you know the world these days. What, what, how do you feel about that market? Well, I'm, I'm headed over there this weekend. Uh, we have the G2E Asia starting next week, uh, which I'm involved in. So uh, I will be there. But, uh, you know, I've been there many times now, and uh, I think it's uh, it's just amazing what's going on there. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to Francis uh, Lim, the, uh, uh, or Louis, the uh, head of uh, Galaxy while I'm there. And Galaxy has just been knocking them dead with since they opened last May. Right. Um, and I understand uh, the Sands uh, project is really doing very well too, the Kotai Central. So, you know, I think there's still quite a bit of growth going on there. I, I've talked to uh, executives in that market and I said, well, when do you see the growth stopping? And they said, unless it, unless they do something to artificially uh, 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 strangle them, they, they, can see, they can't see it stopping. It's just going to keep growing, you know, at 
a at a twenty percent clip uh, every year. So, you know, when you consider that they've only penetrated one half of one percent of the Chinese uh, middle class market, you know, there there is an incredible amount of growth left to go there. So uh, it's exciting for those people, but. Uh, and I'm not sure. I've seen the picture of the wind, like like Chuck says, and it, Dave, David. It probably reminds you, as it did of me, of, of a couple of those projects in Atlantic City, the old Sahara project that oh, yeah. was supposed to go in down on uh, Albany Avenue. Uh, it's yeah. got that same kind of feel to it. It look, it feels kind of like old and in the way. You know, I just, <laughs> I'm surprised it's not more dramatic. It doesn't look very. I don't know. Maybe modern's not the right word, but it doesn't feel like of this time very much. At least from that one photo that's been circulated of of the rendering i mean it right. just it i don't know it feels like something that maybe you could imagine it had been there for 30 years not that it was going to open in four years right. or however long it's well, not it's sexy like, when when uh changes things you know right up to the last minute so i'm sure it's been changed quite a few times since uh sure. since we've seen that and and to hear the way they talk about it now win is no no stranger to hyperbole but i mean you know, clearly he feels like this is going to be, you know, at some point he'll retire. And I think he gets the impression that, you know, this may not be the last property he works on in his wind resorts career, but clearly he wants to make a mark with this. And that's the impression I've got the way through the way that they've communicated about what they're planning to build. And it sounds like they really think they've got a hit on their hands that they, they basically, you know, they refer to it as the culmination of all of their experience, which I guess you could argue every single property they've done previously would be the same thing. But, um, you know, it, they're, they're clearly, they have been very enthusiastic about what they're doing. So I am curious. I can't wait to see more detail and really get a feel for what they're going to do. Um, I'm sure it's going to be something we're seeing. Well, I, I know that that uh, he has been very critical of of the properties that have already been opened, including Galaxy. So, uh, and I'm sure he's laughing under his hat at at Sans Kotai, since there was really no kind of wow factor in that. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure he thinks that that he's going to be head and shoulders above them, and I don't doubt that he will. You know, I, I think I think it's going to be a very impressive property, and, and whatever he does there to to attract the mass market, which again is what what he wants to do in that property, I think he's going to do a great job. It's so funny to watch the different approach of Las Vegas Sands and Wind Resorts to building and operating their properties. I mean, it, you know, both have been very successful. Las Vegas Sands is just on a tear if you look at the amount of money they're making. Um, but if you can't imagine Wind Resorts ever opening a property like Sands Cote Central. No. <laughs> it's just not it's just not in their bones, right? It's just not the way they well, do things. Maybe after Steve's dead. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Um all right, I think I wanted to touch on one more thing before we kind of move into our wrap up, which was a story you wrote, Dave, in Vegas Seven that came out today. Um mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, about uh Stuart Mason. Yeah, sorry. That, yes, you wrote two, right? So no, this is the Yeah. Yeah, you know, Stuart, Stuart moved to Las Vegas in 1965 to build Caesar's Palace. I got to know him over the past couple of years. He was a donor at the libraries and underwrote a program with the peer coaches, which got some of the students involved in a different way. And he was just a really interesting guy. Um, and I interviewed him for the Sarno book, and he just had so many 
fascinating things to say about building Caesar's Palace and what it was like to move him to Vegas in 1965 and basically watch the city grow up around him. And he was also really involved with a lot of philanthropy and community stuff. And usually when people talk about Vegas, they talk about how it's so plastic and it's so transient and nobody knows anybody else and nobody really cares. If you look around and actually talk to people here and look at the history, you'll see that, no, people have done a lot. And that's the reason why I wrote the piece. You know, I did it as a tribute to Stuart and, you know, just to help people be a little bit more aware of the real Vegas community outside of the Strip, but that also right. intersects with the Strip. Well, that's definitely a common sort of meme that there that there is no sense of community in Las Vegas. It's the kind of place where you never know the people that live around you and uh, that, you know, it's sort of every man for himself. It's a city of transients, blah, blah, blah. I don't mean homeless people, but there are some, <laughs> there are some of those. But just people coming and going, you, people don't put roots down necessarily uh, as it's, you know, people coming in for a job and then leaving. I mean, it's interesting to see that uh, debunked, whereas, you know, I'm sure it's like every other community, right? There's a little of this and a little of that. Yeah, and he just had such incredible stories about everything. You know, for example, he was building something for Bob Stupak, and Stupak wanted to bet him, you know, well, hey, I'll bet you $1,000 that this is going to, you know, that whatever, this floor got finished before the other floor. And, and the starts to say, no, you know, Bob, I don't, I'm not a gambler. I don't gamble. He's like, well, you know, damn it, next time in the contract, put in some money, you know, put in extra money, and you can use that to bet against me. <laughs> you know, so just, you know, you've got to think that he, you know, in his career, he encountered so many people like that and so many interesting people. So um, just really interesting guy and also a really, really, really nice guy. Where's Bob Stupak when you need him? <laughs> Man, what a crazy bastard. Yeah. Chain, chain smoking in hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it always amazes me to think that the stratosphere was conceived on a, after doing about a hundred lines of, of uh, cocaine. <laughs> you know what? That, that makes perfect sense to me. That's why the thing is crooked and the, the legs don't even. <laughs> and that was the th you know, the thing from the Paul Steelman interview where, where Paul said, you know, when you're sitting in a meeting and somebody says, go down to the Excalibur and look at that level of customers and we want to go below that, you know, you know they're not. That was just hysterical. So, yeah, I mean, if you could have been a fly on the wall in those meetings, I'm sure that would have been great. Oh, man. It's good stuff. All right. Um, I think we're going to call it a day. And what we're going to do now, uh, and Roger, I'm sort of putting on the spot because I didn't warn you about this, but we, okay. we do a segment called uh, Sure Bets where it's basically we get to endorse something to the audience that we think they may enjoy. It doesn't have to be casino related, but it can be. Uh, we welcome you to participate, but since I didn't give you a warning, I totally understand uh, if you want to uh, abstain or if you want to um, you know, pimp something that you've going on, one of, one of your events or whatever, that, that's fine too. Uh, I will leave you until last in case you want to try and think of something. Okay, um, great. But if you're not – if you if you want to pass, we totally understand. I so, can deal with it. <laughs> all right. All right. Good. Thinking on your feet. I appreciate that. Um, Chuck, can I start with you? Do you have something Please. for us today? All right. Go ahead. Please. I certainly do. Uh, my sure bet is a television program, which actually I don't even watch it on television. I watch it on the iPad. But it's it's a program on the uh, extended basic cable uh, the the uh, the channel is the DIY network, and the show is called the Bronson Pinchot Project. And you, some of you may remember the actor Bronson Pinchot. He played Serge in Forty Eight Hours. I think it was Forty Eight Hours. 
he was on a TV show called uh, Perfect Strangers. He's a comedic kind of actor. Well, oh yeah, he, no, it wasn't Forty Eight Hours. That was um, that was Beverly uh, Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Uh, he uh, he. When he's not acting, he rehabs and rebuilds houses. This isn't like a flipper situation. He does this because he loves this. And he, he's bought a couple of houses in Harford, Pennsylvania, these old Greek revival houses. So they look kind of like, you know, Monticello. So they've, and he's rehabbing them with all sorts of antiques and stuff that he never like refinishes and, and, and rebuilds things with like antique glass and really gets down to the nitty gritty of the period. He doesn't even put like fresh paint on it. He keeps the chalky old falling off paint on stuff. He hides all the electrical. He hides all the, uh, 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 like appliances and whatnot. So you, you feel like you're living in a, you're in a 1960s or 1862 kind of house. It's a pretty fascinating show. Uh, if you like interior design and kind of goofball humor, he's he's good at it. And uh, yeah, I I, I I I dig it. It's pretty nice. funny. Is it on a regular schedule? Where can we find it? I don't I don't know. I watch it. They have an iPad app, and oh, I okay. discovered it on that. And I imagine it's on the TV too. Okay. So awesome. Thanks for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Dave Schwartz, how about you? I've, in addition to the RD&E conference, which I believe I had last time, I've got another conference that's coming up, and it's actually tomorrow. Um, it's the Internet Gaming Regulation Symposium. It's being held right here at UNLV at the Boyd School of Law. And in addition to the conference, probably by October, we will have the conference papers published in book form. So it's just... Um, if you happen to be an attorney specializing in internet gaming law, this is a place for you, but that's a pretty small community. Um, but also, I figure people might be interested in knowing that UNLV is doing this kind of stuff and getting people together to talk about what's going on right now. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that definitely seems to be heating up again. I think I saw some story that Wynn was uh, applying for um, a license as well, trying to do their thing. I don't know. We'll, I'm sure, talk about that in the future. An mm-hmm. internet license? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a license to be online. You know, sometimes, <laughs> with some of their internet uh, offerings, they might need one. Is he going um, to use his own internet or is he going to borrow yours? He's, uh, he, he, he has, uh, he's been leasing mine for a while. Um, yes, that's a funny story. I'll have to tell that story again someday. Um, for now, I will leave you all in the dark as far as what that means. Uh, I would like to talk about uh, – actually, I, I am not necessarily going to endorse something, but I wanted to say uh, thank you to um, people that use my iPhone app, Vegas Mate, that have taken the time to um, participate in a user survey that we put up uh, about a week ago. The, the, you know, I, I hate – personally, I'm not a big fan of taking surveys, and so I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to get – sort of take the pulse of some of the people. It's very difficult with apps because you don't have any real connection to the people that are using it. It's it's hard to know which way the wind is blowing. And so I had a few questions, but I, I wanted to uh, be very conscious of the fact that surveys kind of suck. So I wrote a very short survey that uh, I put up and didn't know what kind of response I was going to get. Uh, it was And I was kind of overwhelmed. There's been a ton of response. A lot of people participated with, with some really interesting and helpful information 
um, some snide and angry comments, but mostly very, uh, you know, very thoughtful. So I really just wanted to say thank you to everybody that took the time to participate. I really appreciate it. And, um, please, you know, rest assured that I am going to read through all of it. I haven't finished yet, but, uh, read through it all. And, um, you know, it, it's just, I it <clears throat> can't guarantee that I'm going to do what you want, but it's sort of in my head and I just like knowing, uh, how people feel about stuff and what they get the most use out of. So I just want to say thanks to my good friends out there in iPhone land. Um, all right, Roger, the time has come. You are on, <laughs> you are, you, I'm putting you on the spot. Do you have something you want to recommend? Um, yeah, for, uh, people who, who visit Las Vegas, I, I think, uh, you know, there's so many things around the city that are, that are great attractions that are outside of Las Vegas, uh, natural attractions as well, the Valley of Fire and, uh, uh, Red Rock Canyon and all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, I, I actually live in, uh, Boulder City and, uh, I think this is a little gem of a town. I, I don't think I could live in Las Vegas anymore. There's just too, too much going on down there, especially when you have a family. But, uh, I think Boulder City is a real, real, uh, a gem, a hidden gem, uh, of the valley here. And I think, uh, if people, are coming to Vegas and they want to get away from it, uh, you know, and they want to go down to the dam for one thing, you can do that. And then, and then stop in Boulder City. The downtown part of Boulder City is a, is a really nice, uh, a little town. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful shops and, uh, nice restaurants and bars and, uh, it's a, it's a real happening place. Uh, and then if you happen to schedule your trip at a time, there's a, a festival, which there are many in the spring and in the fall. Um, the, the art in the park, I think, which happens in October is, uh, is a huge festival. They have Almost uh, you know 500 uh, artists that, that come to the, to one of the beautiful parks here in the city and and lay their wares out. So uh, it's a real uh, nice place to come visit, get away from Las Vegas. It's quiet. It's a family oriented town, and uh, there is no gambling here though. So uh, don't expect to find a slot machine unless you go down to the Hacienda Hotel down by the lake. Uh, but it's a it's a great little town, and I think anybody who wants to really see a different side of Las Vegas should come here on one of their trips. Nice, that's a great tip. I have to admit, I have actually never been to Boulder City, so I'm no I'm now going to have to <laughs> put it on my list. And I've only ever heard good things, so um, you're reinforcing that. But uh, now I'm going to have to see it for myself. Well, people think it's really far away too, and it's not. It's a thirty-minute drive from the Strip, so uh, it's uh, it's really a nice place to go. Get away from what you're doing, and uh, again, if you're going down to the to the dam or or the lake, the lake is beautiful. Uh, so, you know, anybody who wants to to get away from what Las Vegas is, this is a per- perfect place to come. Yeah, nice, excellent tip. All right, um, I think that's it for today. I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, I'm also now I'm going to go around the table one more time so you guys can tell people where they can find you if they want to be inside of you. That didn't sound right. If they want to learn more about you, if they want to know what you're doing and keep up with you. Yes, that's what I mean. Um, Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people track you down? Two Way Hard Three, of course, ggschwartz.com, um, Vegas Seven, and at UNLV. Mr. Chuck Monster, how about you? People can find me at the Horseshoe Las Vegas. Oh, wow, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> Where's uh, that? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, Roger, if people want to know more about what you're doing or kind of keep up with you, what's the best way for people to do that? 
Our main website is uh, ggbmagazine.com, Global Gaming Business. Uh, and then for our conference in a couple of weeks, it's rdeexperience.com, uh, where you can see the entire program. And, uh, and again, uh, my, you'll, you'll see a connection to, uh, way to ways to email me on either one of those websites. And if you email me, I'll give you a, give you a discount uh, to register for the show. Great. I will put those links up so people can get there directly. And um, for folks looking for me, don't. I'm taking the weekend off. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Really appreciate it.